Hello and welcome everyone to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, and that's Bjorn. Let's jump in. So in the series, we're going to be covering the Battle of Antietam, otherwise known as the Battle of Sharpsburg, occurring in 1862 during the U.S. Civil War. Today we're going to be talking about the events that lead up to the battle, but before we do that, Bjorn, I want to discuss with you why Antietam was so significant. So I know this is one of your favorite battles in all of history, so I'm going to just throw it over to you. Why is it so significant? Yeah, man. So you're absolutely right. This is one of my absolute favorite battles in history, just from a point of, you know, I think people uh, discount its significance a little bit, um, but just the way that the battle occurred and and some of the real impressive uh, aspects of this battle. So first, you know, when you put the Battle of Antietam, otherwise known as the Battle of Sharpsburg, that's a really cool kind of little thumbnail note. Uh, when you're talking about these battles, early battles of the American Civil War, they ha- they were known as different things by both the North and the South. So the the Northerners, they called this battle the Battle of Antietam, well, as the Southerners called it the Battle of Sharpsburg. Now, generally speaking, there are a couple exceptions to the rules, and especially later on at the end of this war, the, the names of the battles start to become more on the same page. But the North would utilize key land features in their battles, uh, in the naming of their battles, whereas the the Southerners would use uh, cities. So for example, you've got the first battle of Bull Run that's named after a river or a creek that that is called Bull Run. Uh, that's what the Northerners called it, whereas the Southerners called it the Battle of Manassas Junction, which was the name of a junction of, of some rail lines. So kind of cool to keep in, in the back of your mind, a little bit of a fun fact. The Battle of Antietam, referred to by the Northerners, that's Antietam Creek. It's a little river that runs through the battle. And then the Battle of Sharpsburg by the Southerners, the battle took place near the city of Sharpsburg in Maryland. Yep. So just a really kind of silly, fun fact for you to put in your back pocket. But really, let's talk about the significance here. So uh, I'm going to go out on a ledge here, Brendan, and maybe, you know, you can you can disagree with me a little bit on this, but I'm going to make the comment that the Battle of Antietam is more significant to the outcome of the American Civil War than the Battle of Gettysburg is. Now, many people today look at Gettysburg and they're like, oh, that was that was the the last hurrah of the Confederacy. You know, that was their their high water. They call it the high tide or the high water mark of the Confederacy. This is where the Confederacy was never stronger. Well, I'm going to disagree, and I'm going to say that it was a year prior, the Battle of Antietam. This battle right here was the was the nail in the coffin of the Confederacy that, that basically put it on a downward trajectory. At yeah. the end of this battle, the outcome of this battle resulted in a scenario in which the South had no realistic chance of winning. So uh, I'll, I'll define it a little bit better here. Uh, what we're seeing is prior to this battle, you've got... Robert E. Lee taking over in the summer of 1862. So remember, there was this seven days campaign. Uh, George B. McClellan, the Union general, he's down by Richmond. He's within miles of Richmond and he's advancing. And it takes Richmond a is the capital of the Confederacy. That's right. Yep. Yep. The capital of the Confederacy, he is within miles. He can see the church bells of the capital of the Confederate States of America. Now, understand the reason why Richmond was so vital was because it was a huge hub of manufacturing in the South. It was one of the, the almost a majority of manufacturing capabilities was in Richmond. The Tredegar Ironworks was one of the only ironworks in the South capable of creating weapons such as cannons. So it was a vital hub. You capture the capital of Richmond in the first, you know, first or second year of the Civil War, and this bad boy's over, okay? So, so that's what we're looking at early on in, in the early summer of 1862. And 
Joseph Johnston, the general in charge of defending Richmond, he's injured and he's replaced by Robert E. Lee. Now, Robert E. Lee, he he was a stunning general uh, during the Civil War, but originally, you know, he had he had earned a nickname called Granny Lee or the Queen of Spades through some of his actions at the very beginning of the American Civil War. It was a lackluster performance, but he takes over command of this army and he does amazing things with it. He is actually capable of pushing McClellan out of the peninsula. He, you know, it was it was very, very costly, but in the end, we pushed him out. The he pushed him out, got him, got him to get out of the Richmond area. And then he quickly reevaluates and realizes that not only did McClellan have an army on the peninsula, but there was another guy named John Pope who had an army up by Manassas. And so now he has to reassert his attention towards Manassas. So great victory for Lee in the peninsula. He moves up. He goes to Manassas. Great, outstanding victory for the Confederacy there at Manassas for the second Battle of Bull Run. And then from there, he's looking at a scenario in which the the entire eastern theater of the Civil War, there are almost no Union soldiers in Virginia. For the first time since 61, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so he's looking at a scenario where they have the capability of going onto the offensive, to go into uh, Maryland, to go into the North, to bring the war to the North. And these are important for a couple key reasons, but the one I'd like to really point to is in the late summer of 1862, European nations were looking at whether they should recognize the Confederacy as a nation. Remember, during the American Revolution, when the American soldiers, when the Americans won the Battle of Saratoga, France recognized us as a nation. They said, this country, the United States of America, we recognize them. That is a huge, a huge portion of why we were capable of winning the revolution. And a similar scenario may have occurred in the summer, the late summer of 1862. What benefits would the Confederacy have gotten if they would have received that recognition? That's a huge benefit to a Southern nation where right now um, there were there were a lot of legal confusion as to putting down a rebellion as opposed to fighting a war against two nations. So you're talking about interstate commerce between the Confederate States of America and Great Britain would have been drastically changed had the had the the British actually recognized the Confederacy as a nation. It would have it would have allowed them to outwardly. Uh, provide loans. They would have been able to sell weapons without kind of circumventing the situation. They would have been able to sell ships to the Confederacy in a more broad way. So uh, the the British created a lot of ships for the South. A lot of the, the Southern naval vessels were produced in Great Britain, but they had to do it through purchasing from third parties, right. you know, from Sweden or whatever. We had to, the, the, we had to see it go through. It's a very uh, complicated back channel. To get yeah, ships from the UK to the South. Absolutely. Yeah. So we got back channeling going on in order to get these ships. So that would have changed. Trade would have changed. The blockade would have been affected by nations actually identifying and, and moving towards uh, recognizing the Confederacy. But not only that, we would have seen more, uh, more ambassadors saying, you know, we're from France and we would like to negotiate a truce between the North and the South to, for seeking the Confederacy's independence. So what really happened is during this the biggest point, right? To have someone recognize your territory as your territory and then to come, make make the two parties come to the table to agree on terms. That was the thing that would have killed the union. Oh yeah, it would have been devastating. 
the British ambassador sitting down and saying, I'd like to broker peace with the goal of making the Confederacy independent. Yeah. That would have been a, a crazy scenario to find yourself. And what actually was going on is as Lee was invading the North in 1862, the British cabinet was actually sitting there discussing whether they should uh, recognize the Confederacy. And basically and waiting it, on news from this campaign. That's exactly what it was. A cabinet member stood up and said, General Lee is invading the North as we speak. I move that we pause this conversation until we realize the outcome of this bill. And that's what the major significance of this of this engagement is. Yeah. You know, there are there are a couple different reasons why he's going to invade the North, but that in my mind is the biggest significance to this battle in that had the Confederacy won this battle, it is maybe not highly likely but there is an increased chance that the European nations at the time would have recognized the South as an independent nation, and it would have been much harder for the Union to win. Yeah. Well, on the other side of the coin, there is, a, there is a plausible scenario in which had the Confederacy been completely annihilated in this battle, that the conversation of the emancipation of the slaves doesn't happen. not have happened. Mm -hmm. Because during the year 1862, the Union was not fighting to free the slaves. The Union was fighting to bring the South back. Mm -hmm. Remember, Abraham Lincoln is going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation as a result of their uh, their performance at the Battle of Antietam. Had Lee's entire army been destroyed, the war would have essentially been over at that point in time, and there would have been no need mm -hmm. for Abraham Lincoln to have freed the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation. So this is this is a key battle. That had it turned, had it gone either way, would have had outstanding significance. Whereas what happened resulted in this war lasting for another two and a half years mm -hmm. yeah. and hundreds of thousands of deaths, and the way we see it today. Whereas and then also the emancipation of slavery, right? And uh, you know the South becoming back a part of the Union again. Yeah. So yeah, it's just the the fork in the road. This is one of the scenarios in which had it turned left could have gone one way, had yeah. it turned right, could have gone the other way. But instead it was like a, a subtle, you know, we leaned over one way and continued going straight yeah. and, and it resulted in massive casualties. So one of my favorite battles to discuss, one of my favorite battles to, to look at and to research, because there are so many different scenarios that could have taken place had this been just a little bit different. So let's jump into it. So like you said, this follows the battles of McClellan at the Seven Days Campaign during the Peninsular Campaign, and then the uh, Northern Virginia Campaign, like where you said Lee defeated Pope. So we're going to be talking about the Maryland Campaign today, and this can be seen as the last film of the trilogy uh, for the summer campaigns of 1862. So following the Second Battle of Bull Run, like you said, Lee had a massive advantage. The Union had left Virginia, no more Union troops in the South. So Lee moves north with his 55,000 men through the Shenandoah Valley up to Maryland. So this was on September 4th, 1862. And his main objectives here were to resupply his army outside of the war-torn Virginia theater, which had been seeing battles constantly since 1861 with the first Battle of Bull Run. So the farm fields, the agriculture, the troops, or the food that's available in Virginia is very limited. And it's hard to keep a, you know an army in the field with not a lot of food. So he wants to move the battle to Maryland to potentially open up some new places for him to supply his army. 
to damage the northern morale in anticipation of the November elections that are coming up in two months. And remember, when a midterm occurs, as they saw in 1862, they're going to see the Democrats gaining ground in both the House and the Senate, but it's not going to be an overwhelming majority. So what could have happened had Lee completely annihilated McClellan or even performed at a, at a rate that was seen as an outstanding victory, we could have seen a midterm election that would have been vastly different. We could have seen the Democrats taking control in the House and in the Senate and then forcing peace terms. Mm -hmm. Other things that Lee was looking for was potentially inciting uprising in slaveholding state Maryland, where you know the capital of the Union was, Washington, D.C., and then also, like you said, Bjorn, to seek European recognition as a legitimate state uh, in the Confederacy. So it's important we're, when we're also talking about uh, inciting an uprising in Maryland, it's important to recognize that Lee and and his generals and, and the Southern government and basically believed that Maryland was on a tipping point where they would have potentially joined. The, the area that Lee invaded actually had no interest whatsoever in joining the Confederacy. It was more the, the guys from Baltimore, which is kind of on the eastern side of Maryland. They were the more of the hot-headed individuals, but the people on the western side of Maryland where Lee is going to invade, because remember the Shenandoah Valley kind of comes out in that western portion, they were a lot more tame with the idea of, uh, of not, not seceding from the Union. So there was no realistic chance of Maryland seceding with regard to this invasion. But when we're talking about food, uh, getting out of Virginia during the prime agricultural season was very important because mm -hmm. Lee knew that he was going to have to rely on Virginian agriculture to get him through the next winter. And in order to do that, he went up into uh, the north and he actually obtained copious amounts of supplies. Actually, you know, about when he when he came back, he brought about six weeks worth of supplies with him mm -hmm. from the north. So he lived, even though his army was not necessarily defeated, but they didn't win in mm -hmm. Maryland. They did not win in Maryland, but he actually brought about six weeks worth of provisions back into Virginia with him. So he sustained himself during the entirety of this campaign, and then he brought back enough to sustain himself for another six weeks, uh -huh. which is almost a victory in itself when right. you're talking about how strapped the South would be for supplies. After Pope is defeated at Second Bull Run on September 2nd, Abraham Lincoln named George McClellan to command the fortifications of Washington and all the troops for the defense of the Capitol. The appointment was controversial in the cabinet, a majority of whom signed a petition declaring to the president our deliberate opinion that, at this time, it is not safe to entrust to Major General McClellan the command of any army of the United States. The president admitted that it was like curing the bite with the hair of the dog. But Lincoln told the secretary, John Hay, we must use what tools we have. There is no man in the army who could man these fortifications and lick these troops of ours into shape half as well as he. If he can't fight himself, he excels in making others ready to fight. We probably should just take a moment here, Bjorn, talk about George McClellan. You know, he failed at the Peninsula campaign, and it seems like nobody in Washington is like super excited to have this dude leading the defense of the Capitol. Yeah, yeah, Brendan. That's the that's the thing that's so interesting. When you're looking at Abraham Lincoln during and his actions during the Civil War, he spent a phenomenal amount of time, about three and a half years, looking for a general who would just fight. Someone who would just fight. Uh, he's going to go through generals right now. Looking for a Lee, right? He, he was looking for someone who could fight against Lee, just like Lee would fight against himself. Yeah, and he couldn't find it. You know, we went through McDowell and then McClellan and then Pope back to McClellan, Ambrose Burnside. Yep. And then we we'll got talk about Fredericksburg probably in the just, future. Just all of these generals he's moving through trying to find himself someone who will fight. 
And then he finds that man in Ulysses S. Grant, who is out in Virginia. And although Ulysses S. Grant's going to see some controversies on himself, Lincoln, again, will defend Grant by saying, I need this man. He will fight. Yep. Whereas we've got guys who, who won't fight here. But I love what he said to John Hay, to the secretary. He said, we must use the tools that we have. But then he recognizes that if he can't fight himself, he excels in making others ready to fight. You know, George McClellan was very intelligent. He was, you know, he was high up in his class in, in, uh, in West Point, was an engineer, brilliant man. But I kind of, I kind of look at it as, you know, when you've got these little you know, six, seven year old playing with plastic army men, he loved setting up his men and he was afraid to knock them down. So he was terrified of losing his army. He was terrified of losing his men, but he was really great at setting up his armies. And Which that is really was a good thing when you're defending the capital. Oh, yeah. yeah. But also his men were incredibly endeared to him because they knew that their lives were not going to be mm. wastefully thrown away. Well, at the same time, his lack of aggressiveness actually cost more lives. Yeah. He would have been so much better off had he been just an ounce more aggressive. But they knew that that he was not going to waste their lives to the point where he was almost too timid. He was not a great battlefield general. He would have done better as like the the chief of the army, something like right. that, where he could have been in charge, something like what General Winfield Scott right. was. Or what Lee was before he became a field general. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, McClellan's a perfect staff officer, not yep. a good battlefield commander. So McClellan's in command of the defense of Washington now. So Lee moves his army into Maryland, and he, this is controversial too, so he divides his army into four separate echelons uh, as he moves into Maryland. So he received intelligence of militia activity in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. So Lee sends Major General James Longstreet up to Boonesboro and then into Hagerstown. He sends Major General Thomas Stonewall Jackson to seize the Union Arsenal at Harper's Ferry with three separate columns. So this left two units. So the first is the thinly spread cavalry of Major General Jeb Stewart and a division of Major General D.H. Hill to guard the Army's rear at South Mountain. So that's interesting too because when you look at like the rear of the army as at South Mountain. Well, that's quickly going to become the front of the army uh, as we move into the further this Maryland campaign. But so the way that the army is situated with Jeb Stewart between Lee and McClellan. So Jeb Stewart's, you know, west northwest of Washington, D.C., D.H. Hill near Stone Mountain, and then Stonewall Jackson and um, Longstreet further south to Hagerstown and to Harpers Ferry. So he splits his army. So they, like they're pretty far, you know, geographically with these four different units in Maryland. Right. But again, remember they're split because they're they're working as locusts on the ground. They're trying mm -hmm. to grab supplies. They're trying to make right. sure that they make it through uh, the winter time. And we we're gonna we're gonna run into a couple issues here with how thinly spread these guys are. But remember, McClellan is slow. McClellan mm -hmm. is slow, and so they thought they'd have extra time in order to gather those supplies than what they turned out having to do. And that dealt with a different scenario entirely that we'll get to. Yeah. Lee enters Maryland. He initially leaves for Maryland with 55,000 men, but he sees his strength start to weaken almost right away with straggling and desertion. So he left Chantilly with 55,000 men. Within 10 days, he's lost 10,000. So he's down to 45,000. Some of these troops refuse to cross the Potomac River uh, because they see an invasion of the Union territory as a violation of their beliefs that they were fighting to defend their states from northern aggression. A bunch of others become ill uh, with things like diarrhea uh, from eating unripe green corn. 
um, from the Maryland fields or they fell out because they didn't have any shoes uh, as they're walking on the, you know, these hard surface northern roads. So they lose 10,000 men as they're, you know, before they even get to Maryland or right as they get into Maryland. Right. Well, and remember, you've got this thing, we call it the Maryland campaign, but you could essentially spread this out and call it the summer campaign of 1862, because in June, they're fighting a major campaign. Mm -hmm. In July, they're fighting a major campaign. Mm -hmm. And then they move in in August. It's like, this is, you know, the end of August, they're moving in. This is very strenuous on soldiers who can't ride in trucks. You know, they're not riding in trucks. They're marching on the ground. Mm -hmm. So this is very, very strenuous. And Lee is really pushing his army to a breaking point at this time. And we are going to see that army in the form of straggling desertions. That's going to be the major issue here in this battle. One thing to note here is they get into Maryland and they're expecting to maybe start a rebellion in, you know, a public uprising. Like you said, Bjorn, that does not happen. They are not in the slave holding part of Maryland. So it's a very, we'll just say uncool attitude towards the Confederate invasion of the North. Uh, so they're, they're dealing with that. Jeb Stewart is not very effective during this point in doing any sort of reconnoitering against the Northern defenses. So he does not know where McClellan is, where his elements are. On the flip side, McClellan also not good at recon. And so they are kind of looking past each other. They, uh, McClellan thinks that the Confederates have like a hundred, some hundred, 2000 men. Uh, and so he thinks they're huge and he's very scared to leave Washington to pursue them. And then Lee can't really make a decision because Jeb Stewart is not doing a very good job of actually going out and identifying where that frontline trace of the Union Army is. So with that being said, McClellan does move out of Washington starting on September 7th with his 87,000 men uh, in a very lethargic pursuit of the Confederates. Uh, he's, like you said, a very naturally cautious general, and he thought that he was facing 102,000 Confederates, which is like, like almost, that's way over double what yeah. is actually on the field. Yeah, and if you actually look into the numbers, the estimates that are individuals that are involved in this battle in itself, it's almost three times. Mm -hmm. So he, he almost believes that he's outnumbered, outnumbered in itself, but then he believes that Lee has about three times, two or three times as many soldiers as he actually possesses. So this is where this is where his cautiousness is going to cost him the battle. So he leaves Washington on September 7th. During this time, Stonewall Jackson is given the mission to take and seize Harper's Ferry. So between September 12th and 15th, Stonewall Jackson surrounds, bombards, and captures Harper's Ferry. And it's a very small Union element there. Uh, well, by, by very small, it's about 12,000, which is small in Civil War army terms, but is about as big as the entire army was prior to the Civil War. Uh, but if you've ever been to, to Harper's Ferry, it is the worst defensible position ever, mm -hmm. and it's almost an embarrassment that McClellan just left those soldiers there. There is no way that Harper's Ferry can defend itself from a siege. If you look at the battle- Because uh, they're where, completely where surrounded. Yeah, Harper's Ferry is completely surrounded by high ground, in immensely high ground. Once once uh, Jackson got his cannon into position on those high on those high bluffs, there was no chance, and they surrendered. So, but what it really is 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 Lee is telling Jackson, "Hurry up, get them surrendered, and then get going back to the battle." And this is this is something that's going to play in really importantly at the end of this battle. Could Lee have bypassed Harper's Ferry and left it there? Oh, he absolutely could have. But the question is, how would how would that have affected the outcome of this battle? Uh, you know, Jackson was present during the Battle of Antietam. 
He could have bypassed it. There's not a whole lot that 12,000 men in the interior of the Confederate lines, especially with generals as lackluster as the ones who are leading. I highly doubt that the commander of those 12,000 men, he surrendered as soon as those cannons right. were up on the bluffs. I highly doubt he would have been running around in the in the rear of, of Lee. But at the same time, 12,000 surrendered Union soldiers, that's the largest surrendering of American soldiers in history up until the Philippines during mm-hmm. World War II. The interesting thing here is once you capture enemy soldiers, you got to deal with them. And with where Lee's army was positioned, they were between Harper's Ferry and Washington, D.C. I don't think there was any sort of real life communication back and forth. So I think those Union soldiers, units that were at Harper's Ferry could not talk to McClellan. The, the lines were cut. They were not sending runners. So there was no way to communicate back and forth. So I think Lee could have left him there and had Stonewall Jackson's unit with him at South Mountain uh, to better repel the Union force at this Battle of South Mountain that we're going to talk about in a second. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge that's a huge point. The Battle of South Mountain, I mean, the Union's going to win that one, but almost just barely, and that's what's so embarrassing. When yeah. you look at the numbers of the individuals invo- involved, it's nearly embarrassing that the Union almost didn't succeed. Yeah, so let's get into this a little bit. So the Army of the Potomac, which is what we're calling McClellan's Army right now, reaches Frederick, Maryland on September 13th. There... A Corporal Barton Mitchell of the 27th Indiana Infantry discovers a mislaid copy of the detailed campaign plans of Lee's Army, Special Order 191, uh, wrapped around three cigars. So before the Confederates moved north out of Frederick, Lee had written his orders 191 to detail out what the rest of this Maryland campaign is going to look like, right? He gives orders to Stonewall. He gives orders to D.H. Hill. He gives orders to Longstreet and to Jeb Stewart. And he tells all of them what the plans are. He writes the orders down. These get transcribed onto like five or six different pieces of paper given to runners. Like, so we're talking secret or top secret documents that need to get to these generals so they can start creating their battle plans. And one of them gets lost. And that's what's so ridiculous about this story. Like, this is almost like novel worthy right. of an event because the this order right here, was seen as so vital to the success of the campaign that James Longstreet, upon upon receiving it, he read it, he memorized it, and then he ate it. He ate that is how important that order was, and that's how that's how it's just a complete and utter, uh, just ridiculous that someone would have lost this order when James Longstreet's eating it because it's Great. that important, and someone. Right. So the order indicated that Lee had divided his army and dispersed portions of them geographically, like we talked about earlier, thus making each individual you know, element of his army subject to isolation and defeat in detail. So upon realizing the intelligence value of this discovery, McClellan throws up his arms and says, now I know what to do. He, ate, he waved the order at his old army friend, Brigadier General John Gibbon, and said, here is a paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. He then telegraphs President Lincoln, I have the whole rebel force in front of me, but I am confident and no time shall be lost. I think Lee has made a gross mistake and that he will be severely punished for it. I have all the plans of the rebels and will catch them in their own trap. If my men are equal to the emergency, we'll send you trophies. McClellan waited 18 hours before deciding to take advantage of this intelligence and his delay squanders the opportunity to destroy Lee's army in detail at South Mountain. Now, Brendan, what... You received this order. What should you do? 
oh my God, you start making plans immediately. You start go, you start moving. You send your reconnaissance out to gain contact with the enemy, identify his front line of trace, and then attack. That's what you do. So you're talking about like you get this order and you immediately pull up your 10 stakes. Right. You know that Stonewall Jackson's at Harper's Ferry. You know Longstreet's up in Hagerstown. So you know that all that Lee has left is Jeb Stewart's cavalry and uh, who is it? D.H. Hill at South Mountain. Just So one of the most irresponsible things that McClellan could have done is waiting even one hour. And look how confident he is talking to Lincoln. Yeah. I have them right where we want them. Well, go get them, guy. Go get them. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to send Lincoln trophies. I wonder what Lincoln thought when he heard this too. I have the plans of the rebels. Like that is also kind of a vague thing. Like he didn't say exactly what he received to Lincoln. So it feels like it was a little bit of cover your butt kind of situation here too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So McClellan does start moving though. He does get his army going, but it takes 18 hours when he really should have gotten his army moving within hours. So Lee seeing McClellan's uncharacteristic aggressive actions and possibly learning through a Confederate sympathizer that his order had been compromised, quickly moved to concentrate his army. He chose not to to abandon his invasion and return to Virginia yet because Jackson still was out capturing Harper's Ferry. So instead, Lee chooses to make a stand at Sharpsburg, Maryland. um, And in the meantime, the elements of the Army of Northern Virginia waited a defense at the passes of South Mountain. So South Mountain is a kind of a large piece of terrain uh, on the Appalachian Mountain between Sharpsburg and Frederick, Maryland. So Lee is concentrating himself, you know, the headquarters of the Confederate Army in Sharpsburg, but he has his elements forward up in the passes, you know, where it is constrained terrain, where the Union has to go through these passes to get to Sharpsburg. So so he's blocking these passes mm-hmm. as he's scrambling to bring his men. Right, because he needs to, to buy time to get Jackson to Sharpsburg or to South Mountain. So, so he's trying to buy time. Happened? What would have happened if if McClellan would have moved immediately and not given 18 hours to consolidate his forces? What do you think could have happened? If he would have shown any sort of tempo, he could have gone through the passes before defense was set up and spilled into Sharpsburg almost immediately without having to set up a you know an actual integrated attack. And then we're talking about destroying these units in detail. We're talking right. about 83,000 right, so units of trying to Instead of trying to fight 45,000 Confederates in one single position, you're fighting groups of probably 10,000 at multiple locations with McClellan has 102,000 soldiers. 102,000 versus 10,000 is a good ratio for the attack. So major mistake made right here. Check the right. block. Biggest mistake, 18 hours. Okay, so on so pitch battles were fought on September 14th for possession of the South Mountain Passes. So there's three gaps. There's Crampton's, Turner's, and Fox Gaps. Major General D.H. Hill defended Turner and Fox Gaps against Burnside. And then to the south, Major General Lafayette McClaws defended Crampton's Gap against Franklin, who was able to break through at Crampton's Gap. But the Confederates were able to hold Turner and Fox's gaps, you know, very precariously, but they held them. Lee realized the futility of the position against the numerically superior Union force and orders his troops to Sharpsburg. McClellan now was in a position to theoretically destroy Lee's army before it could concentrate at Sharpsburg. McClellan's limited activity on September 15th after the victory at South Mountain condemns the garrison Harper's Ferry to capture and gives Lee time to unite his scattered divisions at Sharpsburg. Wait a second. So what you're telling me is that McClellan not only waits to move his army upon receiving this vital piece of intel that Lee's army scattered, but then he captures these gaps and then he delays even further? Delays even further. And but Sharps- and Harper's Ferry has not been captured yet. So he theoretically could have destroyed Lee's army and saved his position at Harper's Ferry. Right, because imagine 
you, Harper's Ferry is not captured yet. You push through these gaps. All of a sudden, Lee says, my position in Maryland is untenable. I need to fall back. Right. Falls back into Virginia. And guess who's coming with him? Jackson. Right. He has to come with him. So basically, bottom line for this entire campaign up to now is the longer you delay, the less your chances of victory. You're getting rid of all of your opportunity advantage. On September 15th, Stonewall Jackson takes possession of Harper's Ferry and more than 12,000 Union prisoners. He then leads most of his men to join Lee at Sharpsburg, leaving Major General A.P. Hill's division to complete the occupation of Harper's Ferry. So So on the the 15th, what we're looking at here, Confederate forces at Sharpsburg, Union forces on South Mountain, and then Stonewall Jackson in Harper's Ferry en route to Sharpsburg. So that's kind of where we're going to leave off this conversation uh, you know, just in terms of disposition of these two forces. Now, these 12,000 Union prisoners, each one of them's coming with... Now, what he's, what is uh, A.P. Hill doing when he's completing this occupation? He's uh, signing paroles for right. these 12,000 men. Remember back in the, in the early portions of this war, you obtained a parole where you promised not to fight until you were yep. legally exchanged. He's taking weapons, he's taking ammunition, taking, you know, food, and he's sending them out because they don't have the ability to set up any sort of POW camp. Now, at this point in time... Had Lee just fallen, withdrawn out of out of Maryland, I mean, he could put a feather in his cap on this. 12,000 right. Union soldiers captured. Right. That was not quite as big as Fort Donaldson, but that's a massive amount of men that yep. you could then exchange with your parole tickets with mm-hmm. these officers who are doing the parole. So I'm looking at this as like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ambition and and Robert E. Lee is absolutely uh, audacious when he's continuing this. But kind of the theme in my mind is that he's almost performing a foolhardy action here, moving against McClellan and holding this town. It yeah. would have been so McClellan simple. McClellan got two to one, at least two to one odds, probably closer to three to one odds on on Lee. And when we talk about, you know, in modern army doctrine, when we talk about an army going on the attack, we look to have a ratio of three to one to have a successful attack. And McClellan is pretty damn close to the three to one ratio to have a successful attack here. Yeah. And so basically where we're at right now, we've got Lee scurrying, mm-hmm. scurrying to consolidate his forces on the northern side of the river. There oh, yeah, those Maryland. messenger horses got to be just run ragged with how much Lee's trying to communicate with his divisions. And we've got McClellan slowly plodding Slow. along like he always does. Yeah. But these armies are going to meet and they're going to smash into each other. Yeah. And that is where I'm telling you, we'll talk about it next time. But I'm telling you, this is where the Confederacy lost the American Civil War. Even without losing the battle. That's right. Even hmm. without losing the battle, this is where the South loses the Civil War. I wonder if Lee could have done all of this, but then instead of waiting at Sharpsburg, like you said, retrograde back into Virginia, but then, you know, put the marketing and the branding on this to say, it was a raid into the north. And it's so funny because one would think uh, you lose a major battle or something like this happens and it it severely tarnishes your reputation. Yeah. What we're going to see is that this battle is going to cause massive southern casualties and he will not be held responsible uh. for these losses. His reputation will survive past this. So I am a firm believer that had he withdrawn, called it a raid, Lee's reputation would have been just as sound at the end of this battle as what it was when he fought this battle. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this week in our discussion of the Maryland campaign, the prelude to the Battle of Antietam. So hit that subscribe button so you get the next episode where we watch the Union cross the Antietam Creek and the Confederates defend Sharpsburg. MMG, out.